From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ's Eye on Congress Week Ahead podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. The massacre of 49 people at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, left many in Congress trying to pigeonhole the gunmen into their pet obsessions. It prompted a lengthy Senate Democratic filibuster that ultimately resulted in an agreement to hold gun control votes. And it threw a new wrinkle into a presidential and congressional campaign cycle that's already been dominated by fear. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call with a look ahead to the week of June 20th with budget and economics editor Jane Norman, CQ Magazine deputy editor Jason Dick, and national security reporter Megan Scully. Jane, the process for drafting spending bills to keep the government running in fiscal 2017 was really scrambled by this nearly 15-hour old-fashioned Senate filibuster by Connecticut Democrat Christopher Murphy, and it was on a bill that, among other things, funds the Justice Department. So what did he get for all that effort? What he's gotten is an agreement to have two votes on Democratic amendments to the Commerce, Science, and Justice Bill, as we call it, the Commerce, Justice, Science Bill. There will also be two Republican votes as well. So they have achieved something here after the the horror and the terror of Orlando. And anybody who knows Democrats in Congress probably saw this coming as soon as the full impact of the tragedy down there occurred. That Democrats who have been very frustrated with their inability to move any gun control legislation through Congress would want to make a a very large point about what had happened in Orlando and the need for the changes that they see should occur in, in federal gun control laws. And Murphy, of course, it should be pointed out, his home state was the scene of the Sandy Hook school massacre. He's made gun control uh, an issue ever since, persistently so. And he he spoke very movingly about Newtown and about the the children of Newtown who survived and who have suffered post-traumatic stress disorder after that and the effect on his community and everything else. There's really nobody else in Congress who can talk like this about what happened in Newtown other than the members from Connecticut. For all the emotion, the agreement sets up votes on competing Republican and Democratic amendments uh, starting Monday. Sounds like a recipe for an impasse. It probably is. Uh, It's doubtful that they will get enough Republican support for 60 votes uh, on these on these votes, which are procedural votes that would need to overcome that that hurdle. And then that basically will throw it into the presidential race and and the race for Congress as well, because the House will – they may vote on some gun control proposals that House Republicans will write. They will not vote on these Democratic proposals. And the way the spending process is set up in the House right now, Democrats can't force a vote on that either. So it probably will end there, but I don't think Democrats will let it alone. Yeah, and I mean, this points out kind of the disconnect uh, between Washington and the rest of the country. The public may feel frustrated after a, a horrible mass shooting like this, but the week's events prove that Congress moves slowly and it doesn't easily accommodate the public's mood or anxiety. No, and, and you know, Congress was, was set up to be that way. It, it's not a, a, it was never envisioned as a body that would move very quickly. Um, on this issue, the Democrats would argue it hasn't moved at all. Uh, despite years uh, of attempts for change. Republicans, on the other hand, would tell you that, you know, there are certain constitutional rights that have to be protected for gun owners, and they are are reluctant to, to interfere much with those. 
So once they dispense with this spending bill, and again, by the, having a deal with the Justice Department, it really is the appropriate venue for all right. sorts of gun yeah. policy. Uh, will the House or the Senate feel compelled to further react to the Orlando shooting other than making speeches? Oh, I think there'll be a lot of speeches. I think we will hear a great deal about it. I think we will hear a great deal about it in the campaign, in the presidential campaign, in congressional races. Uh, again, though, it's very doubtful there will be much action until there's a new Congress and a new administration. And, and of course, no guarantee it would occur then either. Now, Jason, we know how fear influenced politics during the Depression, during World War II and the Cold War. Uh, the Orlando massacre certainly would seem to play into the hands of Donald Trump and his more far-reaching plans for going after terrorists. That's true. Uh, Trump kind of came out right away, his first speech after the shooting on Monday, uh, the uh, uh, thir 13th of June, was, you know, basically he doubled down. He, you know, he said that the, this proved that he was right, that they needed to, you know, clamp down on the visa program, that they needed to erect more barriers to any kind of Muslim immigration, that as president he would ban immigration from any kind of country that had any sort of history of terrorism, which would among other countries, probably uh, d disallow immigration from Ireland. Uh, so, I mean, it was it was a very, I mean, he went further than he had gone before. It, it does seem like he's always pushing rhetoric to the limit. It's kind of hard to know what is close to the line in an overheated year like this. We were talking before the show about how talk can backfire sometimes when people feel they're being manipulated or pushed into a state of anxiety. I, the, some of the people that I've talked to in, in this who are experts, they, they conduct, you know, experiments with, with people. They, they show them images. They talk about, you know, anxiety. They're, they're basically looking at, for lack of a better term, political psychology and what works and what doesn't in terms of motivating people to support you or support a candidate. And what a lot of these researchers are finding is that there is a limit. There is a line which people approach. And then when you go over it, everybody seems to know. And one of the things that I found very interesting, and this is in the, the story that's coming out in, in, in the uh, new edition of CQ magazine, is that people are get more freaked out, for lack of a better term. They, 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 they feel anxiety most poignantly when they talk themselves into it, when they're worried, when they're voicing fears that, that are deep down in, inside themselves. And also when they see things like, say, on a, on a newscast or they see an event for which they, they feel that there's no control or they, see, they don't see it coming. Where it gets tricky is when they are aware that they're being manipulated. So if they see an ad that's designed to provoke a fear or an anxiety and they know that that's what the intent and purpose is, say in a campaign ad, that's when they get upset. And that's when, it, when some of this rhetoric becomes counterproductive to what the intention is. A lot of people are expecting the Internet and the broadcast airwaves to be saturated by ads that are playing up national security and terrorism themes. And that's not just in the presidential race, but in down-ticket races, too. Correct. You know, we have several... Uh, states that have not just a swing presidential contest, but also a Senate race and in some a governor's race. Uh, New Hampshire, for instance, is a perennial swing state. There's an open uh, gubernatorial race going on, and which is expected to be close. And there's also a Senate race. Senator Kelly Ayotte is running against the, the current Democratic governor, Maggie Hassan. So that's, that's one of those uh, states that people can basically expect to see, you know, more than 50 percent of the ads be political. Well, could there be one of those have you no decency moments that 
uh, we saw during the Joseph McCarthy communist witch hunts in the 50s. There, there, there could. And, and again, just, you know, kind of backing up, this is one of those those moments in history that where people knew that there was a line that was crossed. Joseph Welch was an attorney who was representing uh, mem- people in the army who were being accused by McCarthy of being communists. And McCarthy at a, at a hearing went after this young army, you know, uh, em- employee, at which point Welch said, you know, you have done enough. Have you no decency, sir? That was, you know, uh, in 1954, this month in, in 1954. Right. And shortly thereafter, uh, McCarthy's Senate colleagues censured him and his his support basically evaporated almost overnight. And he was just finished at that point. We don't know where that line is, particularly with somebody uh, like Trump, because we, we think that he keeps on coming close to these lines, whether it's questioning whether a judge who has Mexican immigrant parents can give him a fair trial uh, to, to this you know, call for a ban on Muslim immigration. Every, he, he keeps on seeming to get close to the line, but it's unclear whether he's gone over it. So, Megan, while national security discussions were going on in parts of the Capitol and elsewhere on, on an abstract plane, uh, the House was passing a huge spending package with almost $576 billion for the armed forces. Uh, you were following that uh, with your colleagues. Uh, and this now heads to the Senate. And there are some really controversial provisions. Uh, one, in particular, would bar money for transferring detainees from the Guantanamo Bay facility ever full stop. And that would certainly squelch any remaining prisoner transfers by President Obama. That's right. It would essentially bring to a a complete and sudden halt um, all of President Obama's uh, efforts to to transfer those detainees who've already been cleared for transfer out of Guantanamo. There are many of the remaining detainees um, can be moved, and um, it's just a matter of, of, of finding places to send them, of going through the process. Um, and, and those are the people that Obama has been transferring over the last several years. And, and that continues efforts of, of his predecessor, President Bush, who uh, he himself transferred out um, more detainees than Obama has un- up until now. This is probably one of the the most stringent um, restrictions on uh, transfers out of Guantanamo uh, that that a chamber has passed, uh, and it's unlikely to survive conference negotiations with the Senate. But it it will be an interesting debate as as the bill moves forward. There were other restrictions and the new restrictions in the bill placed on Guantanamo, including language that would bar the Pentagon from studying any alternatives, um, any follow-on prisons to the the controversial detention facility, and another uh, amendment that that the chamber approved that would would stop salaries and expenses for two Pentagon offices involved in. Guantanamo and detainee policy. Uh, so I don't know what would happen to those people, whether they would just, you know, not be paid or, or what. It, it, it wraps into a, a broader, mostly Republican effort to keep Guantanamo open. On surveillance, the House rejected language by Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky that was in play in recent Congresses and would have stopped warrantless surveillance by the government. Uh, was this inspired in part by Orlando and, and worries about interfering with possible terrorist investigations? Yes, the the massacre in Orlando certainly changed uh, the pendulum here. The language had been adopted by the House in the past two Congresses, but as they were preparing to go to the floor on this language, opponents of the amendment suggested that it could impede uh, terrorism investigations. The amendment specifically would bar the government from conducting 
warrantless surveillance of Americans' uh, digital communications. And it would also have prevented uh, the government from mandating that electronic device manufacturers, uh, like cell phone manufacturers, put encryption uh, backdoors in the devices. This is a very, very prickly topic right now on the Hill. Um, and, and I think the vote today caught a number of, of us by surprise. So uh, another big issue that you've been spending a lot of time writing about, using war funding to pay for the so-called Pentagon base budget, the ships, the planes, the soldiers, the other things that the military services want. And that's been hanging over defense spending. Uh, this is the sort of creative accounting that really sets the Obama administration and some Democrats off. Are the House and Senate on the same page at all? They are not. Uh, the House Appropriations Bill takes the war funding and it and it essentially sunsets it in at the end of April 2017 and in the pl in place of, of war funding they f they fill that account with things like ships and soldiers and fighter jets items that typically are funded out of the base budget uh, but there's no room in the base budget because there's caps on that funding so they so they turn to the to the war budget for that essentially then forcing uh, the next president to request a supplemental spending package for the wars early in his or her first term. The Senate bill, on the other hand, which, which the Senate has yet to consider, finds that money within the base budget. They do some creative accounting of their own by making small cuts here and there, claiming what we call as prior years unused dollars, Claiming savings in terms of fuel, uh, the military is, is the largest user of fuel um, in, the, in, in the government, and, uh, and with fuel prices on much lower end of the spectrum right now, there's a lot of savings to be claimed there. So they went through and, and kind of found uh, $15, $16 billion within their own bill to fund a lot of these goodies, things like F-35 fighter jets and, and new Navy ships. Um, so there's, there's a significant difference between the two bills. Interestingly, there was an amendment considered on the House floor in which uh, it offered by a conservative Republican uh, that would have barred the, the use of war funds for anything other than contingency operations. And as much as we've heard Democrats and fiscal conservatives complaining about the use of these war funds, the amendment was rejected by a wide, wide margin. More than 300 members of the House voted against the amendment. So it, it goes to show you that while many Many people in both parties don't like this approach. They don't see really a better alternative. Yeah, the Senate just a little more subtle about the way they do things. Yes, yes. National Security Reporter Megan Scully, my thanks. My thanks, too, to CQ Magazine Deputy Editor Jason Dick and to CQ Budget and Economics Editor Jane Norman. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for listening. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CQ Now, and you can download our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Have a good week.